0: A lot of y'all in this room have known me most of my life, and I know, and you know, y'all been praying this day would never come when the when the boy took over for the man. But here we are. Thankfully, this is very temporary. This was decided about 7:45 this morning, and uh, I got to a glimpse into. A conversation between my mom and dad that made me realize they aren't real sure how well I've turned out yet. <laughs> mom goes, you, couldn't Kurt just read your notes? And dad hesitated. <laughs> it was like they're having this talk, can the boy read? I don't know. <laughs> and I'm standing there going, hello, I'm right here in the room. Then I started thinking, well, I don't know how these high-level preachers do it. And I looked at Dad, and I said, well, are they in English? <laughs> or, I don't know, I mean, do you do, you do them in that Ph.D. Greek? and I, I don't know, I didn't know. Thankfully, they are in English. And I'm going to read them for you. <laughs> going to see if I can prove them wrong. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Some say Ecclesiastes was a pessimist. I say he was simply a realist, one who faced squarely the reality that human existence is filled with injustices. Some of these injustices rise to such magnitude that we label them as atrocities, a term combining the notions of violence, cruelty, and injustice. By any definition, atrocity accurately describes the death of Jesus on the cross. Death on a cross was always violent and cruel. That's why the Romans made such wide use of it as a way of terrorizing whole populations into submission. One reason we don't know more about the actual process of crucifixion is that it was so horrible, ancient writers thought it inappropriate to speak of it. It happened all the time. Most people just didn't talk about it. In Jesus' case, the atrocity arises from the fact Not just that he was crucified, but that he was crucified, although he had done nothing wrong. He was innocent of all the charges. John chapter 18, verses 19 through 23, says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple Where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus, standing by, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Chapter 18, verses 29 through 31 says, When brought before Pilate, and Pilate asked what the charges were, they couldn't come up with anything concrete. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, Pilate said. Verses 33 through 38 say that after questioning Jesus, Pilate realizes that he isn't any kind of insurrectionist and tells the Jews, I find no guilt in him. We go to chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, and Jesus is flogged, a terrible punishment in and of itself. But he's flogged in hopes of satisfying the crowd, and again he says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Verses 12 through 16 of chapter 19, finally under pressure, hearing from the crowd that he's not Caesar's friend, Pilate hands him over to be crucified without ever even passing a sentence on Jesus. He couldn't since he already declared him innocent. And Jesus suffered terrible indignities leading up to during the crucifixion, mockery, crown of thorns, beaten, spat upon. Even after his death, body pierced with a spear, just to be sure that he was dead. If ever there was an atrocity committed on earth, it was the death of God's Son on the cross, But John doesn't call Jesus' death an atrocity. He calls it glory. Before Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, he spoke often of his hour that was to come. Chapter 2, verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 7, verse 6, to his unbelieving brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in chapter 8, verse 20, even in sharp verbal conflict with Jewish leaders, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What hour is John talking about? Chapter 12, verses 23 and 24 seems to have the answers. "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Note the combination in this passage of glorification. And death chapter 13 verse 1 now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end his hour was his death chapter 13 verses 31 and 32 at the Last Supper Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. Now, by his death, God is glorified. Chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. There's no escaping the conclusion that Jesus' hour was the hour of his death, and his death was his glory. But how could such a terrible atrocity ever be described as glory? Because Jesus' crucifixion was also his enthronement as the true king of Israel and the king of the world. Chapter 18, verses 33 through 37, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. To which Pilate responds, So you are a king. Jesus says, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The point is that Jesus was born for this purpose. Jesus was born to come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. The cross reveals the truth and will lead to Jesus' resurrection. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is mocked as a king. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, the mock homage from the soldiers. The irony is they're right. They speak the truth. He is a king. Verses 19 through 22 When Jesus is placed on the cross with a plaque that declares him to be king of the Jews, the Jews object, but Pilate takes his weak revenge by saying, What I have written, I have written. He speaks the truth. Jesus is king of the Jews. Still, what connection between his death and glory Jesus' death was his glory because he honored God by his obedience. Anytime that we obey God, we bring him glory. Example from Job. Job feared God and turned away from evil, and it drove Satan nuts. So he tried to discredit Job, then to attack him and get him to turn against God. The point being God isn't worth serving. But Job wouldn't give up even though he suffered terribly and he didn't understand. In the same way Jesus honored God by going to the cross through his obedience. He obeyed him regardless of the cost. The cross was his glory because it fulfilled the plan of God. Chapter 19 verse 30. With his dying breath... Jesus cries, it is finished. But what is finished? All that God has been moving toward since Adam and Eve first sinned. You will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head, as foretold by the prophets. Finally, when Jesus died that horrible death, finished, God has been glorified ever since. For his wisdom, his mercy, and his grace. The cross was his glory because the cross is the instrument for drawing all people to himself. Chapter 12, verse 32. When I am lifted up, Jesus says this to show by what kind of death he's going to die. That's why the gospel is simply Christ in him crucified. Because it's that story of self-sacrificing love for the lost and undeserving that draws people to follow Jesus. Sometimes people say, waiting for God to move me to follow Jesus. Have You ever heard anyone say that? (laughs) If the story of what Jesus did by dying for us doesn't move you, nothing ever will. The cross is his glory because through the cross he created a new community of believers. In the second chapter of Ephesians, verses 11 through 18, it talks about how before Jesus came, Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus brought near by the blood of Christ, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Because of Jesus, all can be united in one body. We can all enjoy the same spiritual blessings we can all serve God together. In a world so broken by strife and hatred and prejudice, the cross is the answer to it. Nothing else has worked, but all over the world, people of disparate backgrounds have been brought together in the church. Church hasn't always realized that's part of our mission though, but clearly what Jesus did through his cross. The cross is his glory. If we don't automatically see the connection between Jesus' cross and glory, that's exactly the point. God has taken what was low and what was despised in the world and brought glory out of it. He does that all the way through scripture. And that's why the cross gives us hope. If God can turn the atrocity of a Roman cross to his glory, he can bring goodness and power and grace into your life, regardless of what kind of mess it's in. But there's still more to this story. If Jesus came into this world to glorify God by his life and death, then that's exactly what you and I are supposed to do. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 through 20 says we are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But how do we do this? Do we all have to die on crosses to glorify God? The ultimate price of death may be required of some. It's always been the case throughout Christian history, but not all. Still, we glorify God when we do his will and not our own. Not my will, but thine. We glorify God when we sacrifice for the good of others. Example of Paul using his life for the salvation of others. We glorify God when we choose to suffer because of others rather than doing wrong to them. Love your enemies. It makes sense only in light of the cross. That's exactly what Jesus did. There's an old hymn, I Stand Amazed, that says that Jesus could love us enough to die for us, that God could bring glory out of something as atrocious as the death of his son on a cross. But that's the gospel. And the power of the gospel. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The question is, has the cross drawn you? Have you repented and been baptized? Are you living for Jesus in a way that reflects the glory of the cross where he died? If you need help with any of these things, you need prayer, you'd like to come confess your sins and be baptized. We'll be glad to help you as we stand and sing. You let the cross.